0: This week on Hangar Talk, Cuba. Is it open? Isn't it? Who knows? And out of Frederick, the Erase Classic started
1: and 50 teams were headed to Santa Fe, New Mexico.
0: Also, AOPA gives away some money to some very deserving scholarship recipients. Speaking of money, Benix King delays their onerous repair policy
1: by 60 days.
0: All right, David, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk. Yeah. Welcome to Hanger Talk. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Toulis. And David, our guest this week, um, somebody you talked to, this really fascinating project. Jim Payne is
1: a pilot in Perlan 2. It's a high-altitude glider. They're looking to get some climate change study going, and that is going to take place near Argentina in mid-July.
0: Oh, cool. So these are the guys who like the Airbus Project, where they fly way high. That's right. That's awesome.
1: 90,000 feet. Cool, cool. In a glider, sailing. (laughs) And he
0: talks about sailing over waves and stuff. It's going to be cool. That's awesome. All right, cool. Well, we'll look forward to him. Um, Let's kick it off, though. Cuba. This has been really confusing the past couple of weeks. I mean, I think people were already super confused when the Obama administration eased restrictions a little bit. Right. Uh, We had a show on that. We had Eric Norber on. And um, and as anybody who kind of checks the news regularly heard, President Trump is coming Ro- back on rolling those.
1: back on some of those, uh, some of that openness. Yeah. But not all of it. And yeah. there, there's a good news, bad news situation here for pilots.
0: Yeah. So I think if you if all you did was kind of, you know, watch the headlines and the speech and everything else, you'd think that's it. Cuba's over. I can't go.
1: That's what I and I watch. I watched that speech because, you know what? You and I both have been there.
0: Yeah. Different times. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was very interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a close destination. It's like I think it's something every pilot should do. But uh we we started to dig into this a little bit and Eric Norber, who we had on the show, and he helped you guys get down
1: there. He's with it, Cuba handling.
0: Yeah, that's right. He's got yeah. this company he's been doing it for a long time. An expert on uh-huh. on all those really esoteric rules. It's like a group travel deal. Yeah. So the deal is, you can't just go down there on your own. Can't go on your own, but if you use someone like Eric Or a handling agency, Mm -hmm. you're still good to go, right? You are still good to go. That clears up that aspect of it. I think before, if you were super adventurous and uh, liked to research and everything else, you could have gone by yourself. Yes. But it's still a place that I would have taken a handler and gotten some help anyway.
1: Well, because the logistics are pretty daunting,
0: nonetheless. They can be. They really can be. I mean, it's not like, you know flying for a hamburger and uh-uh. you know just having some fun
1: but still it's a beautiful country to visit and folks who haven't been as you said it's a real fascinating environment it's very pretty too yeah and the people themselves i want to just you know put a, a plug in for them the people are really nice mm-hmm. now they really can't do much about the uh, political situation but the folks themselves are pretty hard working
0: yeah it is tough it's you know i mean anytime not to get into like global politics but it's like that was our experience too. I mean, the the whole person to person, which is what yeah um, we used to be able to go under, um, was really effective because you did get a lot of hands on time. You did. You, you got, know, with and,
1: folks. and sometimes you could stay, or ha- actually you could either stay at a little small place, kind of like a and B, yeah, or have dinner at a little kind of I don't know what you would call it, kind of a little out of the way personal family restaurant yeah
0: paladar that's it i forgot the name yeah that was a cool concept it is really cool so and you know in terms of cuba that stuff is still all going on so if you engage with eric or any of the other handling agencies it sounds like that's there's still some opportunities as long
1: as they have a license with the treasury department i think they're good to go yeah
0: so that's that's good that's helpful info
1: yeah. All right. Some more
0: travel we wanted to talk a little about. More,
1: a little more travel, a little bit closer to home here.
0: Yeah. Um. This has been a really cool couple of weeks around AOPA because the uh, Air Race Classic launched from Frederick this year. It
1: did, man. It kicked off this week uh, as we we're recording the podcast, Ian. And more than 50 teams, and this, these are all female racers. Mm. And their teams have two or three, and they uh, left out of Frederick here on the twentieth, and it's a four-day, you know, air handicapped air race. Now yeah. it's not handicapped, folks. <laughs> <Okay>. that's confusing. <laughs> yes, their times have been handicapped comparatively for their aircraft. The, the basically the, the best possible performance is what they're trying to eke out. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, you know, I know we have a team from AOPA who's participating in AOPA Angels. Yeah, and um, they were talking to me about the rulebook, how they get the handicap. The rulebook is oh two God. inches. <laughs> Thick. <laughs> it's unbelievable how complicated it is. So it's not a spectator sport, I would call it. Although we had a we had a ton of folks watching.
1: Yeah, they were lined
0: launch. up on the ramp. That's true. Actually, I should. You're you're absolutely right. The launch definitely, and I'm sure that all the stops are too. The, the
1: stops were popular, and the and the camaraderie. Now, here's the thing for the racers themselves, the ones I talked to, they were really into it to meet other people and hang out with other female yes. pilots, and just the camaraderie and hanging out and and chowing down together. Was a really neat thing, and I would like to add this before the start of the race. And you know, if you're uh, competing in a sports, a lot of times there's like bumping and grinding, like NASCAR racing, yeah, right, uh, right. and then the golfers that play with each other um, as the groups. You know, they're yeah, they talk to each other, but they really aren't really rooting for e- each other. Mm-hmm. These folks were helping each other pull their planes out from the from the grass onto the tarmac. Mm. And just so oh, everyone was pitching in. So it was a lot of camaraderie. It was really
0: cool. It is cool. And, you know, the thing that I was just blown away by was how much of a thing this whole race is. Because it's like they've been here for like two weeks. They have. There's tons of people hanging out everywhere. There's all kinds of, like, check-ins, I think, and briefings, and yeah. there's airplanes everywhere. Well, the, it, it's yeah. just
1: really neat. Well, the competitors went to a baseball game around here. They went out to dinner and stuff. Yeah. Several came up here. Uh, the teams from uh, Liberty University came through AOPA, and we sat down with them for a little bit. Neat. By the way, I should mention, unbelievably, there are, like, 15 college teams. Oh, my gosh. The, the 13 colleges, 15 teams, so a couple of schools had two teams. mm and then uh, one uh, one group I talked to from Middle Tennessee State, one of the competitors bought her own airplane. Whoa! <laughs> to do this, uh, but, uh, but but there's a little that's bit of, There's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, she actually is an aerospace student and set up a little flying club. Oh Where, wow. where uh, back home in Tennessee they could uh, they could borrow the plane, you know, sort of kind of rent it, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, so this has been going on for a long time. Um, I was just reading about it and it's a long race. I mean, we should say it's like they went from
1: twenty six hundred and some odd miles.
0: Yeah, they went from here to the Midwest, then straight down to Texas and then west over to uh ends in what? Santa Fe, I think. It does, it
1: does. They they went as far north as and it's bizarre, it kinda went backwards. You would think Mm. mostly it would go west to east. This time it went east to north to south (laughs) to west. Twenty six hundred and fifty miles about something like that.
0: And so because of the handicap, it's not a flat-out whoever gets to Santa Fe first wins because no. that'd be like a safety thing.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: I guess it's all based on your handicap.
1: It's crazy. Yeah. I, th- th- I still don't understand the handicap. I, I don't either, but yeah. But it's a fun thing. And like you said, there's a lot of high energy around here. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can kind of—I was listening on the, on the radio— as the racers were getting together in flights of five, that's how they pulled up to the uh, active runway, and you could kind of gauge by how they spoke on the radio of how nervous they were. Oh, really? Or how prepared they were. Oh, okay. Some were just smooth as silk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then some were you could tell they were You're nervous. Like, oh, and, no, it, and, yeah. it, and it wasn't necessarily the college kids that were nervous, and the veteran racers that were calm, it was, uh, you know, either way. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was kind of bizarre. We had a couple of key people here. Ariel Tuito from, was it, Flying Wild, Alaska? Oh, yeah. Remember her? Yeah, yeah, sure. She was flying in the number 15. Cool. And, of course, our AOPA Angels were in the number 43, nice Cessna 182. Nice. And uh, Debbie Wren Harvey, you and I were talking about her the other day.
0: Yeah, air show performer and,
1: Extraordinary pilot. Yeah. uh, Professional aviation background. She was in the number 55 Bonanza.
0: That's awesome. So
1: it was kind of like a that's NASCAR so cool. race in the sky. It yeah. was
0: really neat. Yeah, that's did they switch hats every two seconds while you're talking to them with their well, different I, sponsors? I couldn't tell. <laughs> we'll have
1: to dig deeper into that story yeah. to find out. Yeah.
0: I like it. Oh, uh, cool. All right. So hey, talking about moving on to more, let's call it cultivating generations and people working together and all that kind of stuff. Scholarships. So right. yeah, AOPA has been as part of you can fly. These are this this four-pillared initiative. we got flying clubs, flight training, rusty pilots, and high school. And high school. That's key. Yeah. And And so
1: STEM aviation. We're trying to cultivate all that. Yeah, you got it. Next generation of pilots.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so that's what we're doing here with these scholarships. The high school initiative has lots of different programs as part of it. Right. Um, But one of those is to give high school scholarship.
1: A leg up. Yeah. On
0: aviation training.
1: Yep. But now it doesn't cover the entire cost of a private pilot certificate. Right. Covers most of it. Yep. But not all of it. Yeah, that's right. So um, now we had twelve young men and eleven young women who were um, honored to get these awards. Okay, which is you know more power to them. Very cool stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say that um, I got a chance to look at some of these uh, scholarship uh, reviews, and uh, the whole field, Ian, are just they're just outstanding. I mean, it's like everyone's a winner. <laughs> Seriously. And, um, like, they rise to the top. Like, a lot of these folks have just tons of after school activities and they're real go getters. A lot of them really help out with their family situation. Some older brothers and sisters look out for younger ones uh, or some disabled family members. It really shows initiative wow. and leadership. That's awesome. And it shows you the experience level of their young minds, how mature they are. Hmm. And th- don't you think that you need that kind of maturity a little bit, you know, to get that, that licensing going?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, you can't, I think as, you know, when you're 16, 17 years old, you can't just say like, Oh, I want to be a pilot. It's like, it takes work. It
1: does. A lot of, a lot of leadership skills, a lot of decision-making. Yeah. And you know, this is, you know, critical decision-making stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I will say this, that, uh, some of these folks really had had it set up where they had lined up jobs to work at airports or restaurants, or some other way to make ends meet once that scholarship kind of ended. Okay. Because it takes a while. It takes a while to do it. Yeah. And it takes some funding, you know, and we're, we're giving them a good leg up.
0: Yeah. So this is a way to, you know, we're helping, but um, they've proven that they're in it too, that we're not just going to give them a handout and. Right, yeah, right. And yeah. this is a sub-
1: substantial boost. It's several thousand dollars. Mm.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, I like That's it. so cool. By the way, those are all donated through the AOPA Foundation. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Um, so these are folks who believe in advocating for and supporting uh, kids who are coming up. And so they give money to the foundation. Which then uh, goes through this whole, you know, scholarship process.
1: And as we we're talking about that, we also, you know, are we encourage a lot of the younger people to pursue the STEM programs, mm-hmm. you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, which are very important to politics Yeah, absolutely, that's absolutely, really good stuff. It gives you a leg up in college as well. Yeah, that's so cool.
0: All right, um, so Benix King. We've talked about this a couple times already. Oh man! Um, But you've been doing all the reporting on this. It's been awesome. So if people aren't checking the website, bring us up to speed. Where Where do we stand with the Bendix King repair policy? Okay, so
1: Bendix King started out in May by sending a note to their dealers that uh, that said that legacy radio units needed to be repaired at the Bendix King factory, or repaired or exchanged at the factory. Now this is a big deal for a lot of folks like myself who used to be airplane owners. Folks who still are airplane owners, that um, a lot of planes in the '70s and '80s had these really stout radios, stacks of Bendix King radios, mm-hmm. transponders, even autopilots. Yeah. And so now uh, Bendix King has delayed implementation of this policy for 60 days. Interesting. Originally, they wanted to crank it out on July 1st. So now I'm doing my math. It should be September 1st. Okay. So uh, it's a factory only exchange situation. But not all, not all of their radios. The popular one fifty five, one sixty five line mm-hmm. um, are still able to be f- what you call field repairable yep. at okay. a local avionics shop. Okay. and the KLN ninety four and eighty nine uh, B GPS units, you can still get those repaired, you know, on the field at your favorite avionics shop, not the factory.
0: That's interesting. I, you know, I wonder why they. Did you get any indication why they chose those specific units? Uh,
1: Roger Dykman is who I spoke to, and he said there are literally tens of thousands of them out there. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a reason. Uh, I don't know if the reason is because there's so many out there, or the fact that they're so popular, and people still have parts for them. Yeah. But that's part of that's part of the deal too. That, you know, the parts inventory that's out in the street.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I I hope that's an indication of they know, uh, you know, they, they've thought about the limitations of this program. They did.
1: Yeah, they did. Roger swears up and down that they have. Um, uh, done some surveys. They have uh, checked on their parts availability. They have stuff. They have parts. They have basically units you know, ready to swap out in the inventory right now. Hmm. And, um, and you know, he, he's spent it uh, as it would be a good thing. It actually does help out in a couple of ways because it gives you a little bit longer warranty, like a one-year warranty, hmm. versus who knows what you're oh, going to get nice. on the you know with a field repair. Yeah. And also, the, uh, they're guaranteeing just a couple of days turnaround. So, okay. if you're an avionics shop, this could affect your bottom dollar if you're mm-hmm. not able to repair the units. But a lot of avionics shops are looking to, to the future for ADSB installations, where they would rather spend their time. Yeah, I talk Yeah, with, doing bigger jobs. Yeah, I no talk question. with EPS Aviation in Atlanta. They do you know a, a big amount of radio work, and they would you know quite frankly they'd spend their time better for new installs or or pulling a radio out, sending it off. And put a new one back in or yeah. exchange one back in.
0: Yeah. You know what's interesting about that too is that, you know, you mentioned the big installs. I mean, that's even true with ADS-B, where if you want to go in and just do an ADSB unit, yeah. it's like hmm, you might be you might have to wait a little longer than right. that. You know, if you're if you come <laughs> I mean, simple economics. It's like if I own an avionics shop uh-huh. and somebody comes into me and wants to write me a check for hundred grand to do a full panel install. It's so like I'm going to take that check over somebody who's going to write me a check for 2,500 bucks to do just the ADSB unit, right? I
1: totally understand that. Yeah. The other thing, as a as a former airplane owner, that I can tell you, the other thing is that when airplane owners show up with some kind of issue with one unit, it yeah. usually involves taking several things apart yeah. to get to the one unit, and then while you're in there, you're like, wait a minute, there are all these wires in here from yeah. you know from you know NDV. Oh, we don't need that. We yeah. don't need the antenna. You know, let's lighten the airplane by a few pounds. Let's get rid of all that nasty stuff. So it really involves a lot of poking around and a lot of dismantling of of units and a lot of radio work. Hmm. The other thing I was interested in. Okay. Well, so what's the bottom dollar? Yeah. If I'm an aircraft owner, yeah. how much is this going to cost me? Yeah, time and, what's and money. It, what does it mean to me? Yeah. So I asked Roger and uh, and Greg Cohen, uh, who's the president, I said, hey, you know, float me some prices. What's it going to take? So a KMA24H, which is something that a lot of us flew behind uh, when I was learning in the Cessnas back in Atlanta, mm-hmm. it had one of those audio panels in there. So the flat rate. List price repair for that is twelve hundred and seventy four dollars. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. And we were chatting about this (laughs) a little while ago, and you know, uh, just point of reference. Yeah. A new PS Engineering eight thousand BT. That's our Bluetooth model, I guess. Yeah, really nice audio panel. Fifteen hundred dollars. Okay. So you now you're an aircraft owner. What are you gonna do? Yeah.
0: Yeah. If you're facing a what twelve hundred and fifty dollars, you said repair bill. Right. For an old unit. Right. That's probably gonna have to be repaired again. Well, you get a one-year warranty, um, yeah, which is uh, good. Yeah, I mean, you do get that, but and, it's and, like, yeah. you don't, you know, I mean, it's, it's the basics, right? It's back, it's 30-year-old technology. That's
1: true. And, it, man, you don't get the Bluetooth, you don't get the audio,
0: yeah. you don't get the MP3
1: input any yeah, that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think I might spend the 250 bucks to get, uh, to get the newer panel, yeah. A
1: couple. Of, and if folks want to check out all the prices, they could at AOPA.org uh, on our homepage and just look to our news Tab and check that out, but just to throw a couple of other prices at us, real quick for a KLN 90B GPS $3,228. Now that's plug and play. Out and yeah. out and in, you get a repair exchange unit. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the popular KY97A, it's a com radio, mm-hmm. is nine hundred ninety-five dollars. Okay. So it's like about a thousand bucks. And a Ki204 indicator. Th- these are also very common. Yeah. In Cessnas, Beechcrafts, and Moonies for sure. Mm-hmm. And a KT76C mode C transponder, which I had yeah. personally, and I've seen them in many aircraft. Yeah uh fourteen hundred bucks for the exchange. Now,
0: now that one I think is really interesting because just talking about ADS-B, it's like if you're gonna re- spend fifteen hundred bucks to right. repair right, you know, your KT seventy six, it's like, are you gonna pay a little bit more? You're gonna get ADSB compliant all in one with a new unit. It's that like,
1: would make sense. Yeah. And and really and the other thing that to consider for for aircraft owners is that, you know, don't doddle on this deal for ADSB. Yeah, there have been some studies uh, that we've uh, looked at, and and folks are kind of poking on getting uh, ramped up to that. And 2020 is going to be here before we know it. Yeah, so. it's
0: that's that's very true. So that's interesting that they're that they're going this way. You know, I think, um, like I said, it's if you're faced with some of those repair bills, your next question is, okay, do you do you fix it or do you you know Upgrade. check it? Um, right. One thing that Tom Haynes was mentioning, uh, and he's totally right about this, is that some of these units, the way they've designed them, and because they're legacy units, they only work with certain, uh, they only play with they, other units. They so play nice
1: like, They play nice with similar pieces.
0: Yeah. So it's like, for example, if you've got a certain autopilot, it might only play with this King indicator right. or, or whatever the That's case may true. be. And so you might be forced to pay the repair bill.
1: That's a good point, unless you swap everything out. Yeah. And the, the full meal deal. Yeah. Or go glass. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> go glass or go last. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You should work in marketing for I like that. (laughs) All right. So let's finish up. We're going to talk about privatization. We talked about the Trump announcement last time. We did. He said that in his budget that ATC was going to be privatized. It was going to be the start of infrastructure week where they were going to talk about totally changing over the infrastructure of the country. Um, that was kind of the big piece that came out of that week. Right. But now finally we've seen bills from both the house and the Senate.
1: That's correct. Yeah. And I love this because
0: (laughs) this is, it's like, you can, you can think about this for hours and hours, but we're going to make it super, super easy. We're going to boil
1: it down for our folks
0: here. Yeah. All right, David. So tell me the bill from the house, good or bad house bill, bad house bill, bad. Okay. uh, bill from the Senate. Senate bill, good. Good. All right. That's it. That's all you got to (laughs) know. We're done. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. um, So the House bill we know uh, privatizes ATC. It does. And and
1: now there are a lot of issues with that because, number one, this is a substantial amount of money that someone would be just handed. Mm. Billions of dollars. Some Mm -hmm. company could just be handed over the reins to that. Yeah. That's the issue.
0: Yeah. Now I will say, I think GA deserves some credit here because the bill came out, GA completely exempt from the beginning. Yeah. And to me, that says a lot. That's like, they know that that they need GA on board and they thought, well, maybe this will get us there. Um, But it has not. So we
1: still, we still stood firm and said, no user fees. Forget it.
0: Yeah, so we are against the bill with several other general aviation groups as That's well. That's right. That's right. But I think it's important to be for something. You know, I think it's important to say what agreed. You know, it's you like can't you can't just
1: dig your feet, your heels in without yeah. saying what we do. We you know want to stand behind. Yeah,
0: and so we are standing behind the Senate version of the bill. Senate bill good. Is Senate bill good. But what's the reason why it's good though, Ian? Well, because they've kept ATC. With the FAA. Basically kept ATC together. Yeah.
1: And so the um, AOPA supports that Senate FAA reauthorization legislation. Mm -hmm. That's a key thing. Yeah. And uh, now one of the things that we hadn't really spoken too much about, but a lot of this boils down to how much funding do we have for the FAA? Mm-hmm. And how do we keep that being funded on a consistent basis? Because about every year or so, there's a crisis. Yeah, Where's I the money know. coming it's from? Constant.
0: Yeah, and if they would just pass a long-term bill like they're supposed to, then we wouldn't have this issue. But it's right. like, you know, because they, they say, well, it's stable funding. Well, that's their job. It's like if they would just give the FAA the stable funding they're supposed to give it, then we wouldn't have this issue. So You
1: know, I agree. And if you dig a little bit deeper, this just occurred to me, if they don't really know where their funding is coming from, you know, it could be it could impact some of the next gen options that they're looking at, mm-hmm. and that really could be dragging the whole process down. We really, you know, the, the traditional news media hadn't really dug into that too much. Yeah,
0: no, it's true. And in, and from our standpoint, it's like next gen. You know, the ground infrastructure is in place. The uh-huh. towers are there. People are starting to equip with ADSB. We see that now. Now they're slow. Yeah, because it's costly still.
1: And it's costly to the point where AOPA has actually fought to bring the costs down. Yeah, man. So it really is affordable now. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's still, becoming but so. It still
0: costs a few bucks. Yeah, but it's funny because the FAA, because the airlines, which are for not all of them, most of them are for privatization. Delta is not. Yeah, Delta's the big outlier. Right. Um. They, you know, the airlines say, "Well, next gen's behind schedule, and uh, you know, the FAA is not a very good manager of this process." And it's like. The Airlines are the ones requesting the exemptions,
1: and the, the so. airlines that they really when you dig into this a little bit, the airline delays that President Trump talked about are airline driven delays, yes, absolutely. And it has to, everything to do with weather and 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 are they waiting for a crew to come? And yeah, is or there concrete? Waiting, or are they waiting for yeah. flight attendants to come? Yeah, yeah, or is there concrete? Is there people circling around, yeah. you know, or, or there are gates? Yeah. This is not just about ATC. Yeah, no. I think we were chatting about this uh, a, a week or so ago. I went um, from here to Philadelphia to, to cover a cool little story. And me and I was, you know, as a VFR pilot, I was cleared right through Class B in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. They could yeah. not have been nicer. I know. It's great. Yeah, the system works well. So, so I, don't, I don't get some of that. Yeah. And uh, I, I think there's a lot more to be said and a lot more to dig in and, and really talk about.
0: Yeah, well, which is a great segue for our guest this week. Oh, yeah, Jim. I'm really excited to hear what you guys chatted about because uh, Perlin, we've been seeing it for a couple of years now. They've flown in the U.S. for a lot of it. Right. Um, but now they're, they're venturing south.
1: So, yeah, I spoke to Jim Payne uh, via Skype. It was great. And, you know, he's got flight experience uh, that's just so extensive. He flew jets in the military, but he says his first love is, is flying, you know, gliders, that's soaring. Awesome. And uh, soaring over these these mountain waves of wind that help you get to ninety thousand feet. That's amazing. That's incredible. Amazing. So they're gonna try to study climate change. Hmm. You know, he's gonna tell us a little bit about that. Okay. And um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what uh, Jim has and what the Pearland Group has. They're really on. They're going where no folks have been before. Hi Jim, David Toulis here from AOPA. Uh, we have you here via Skype, fresh off uh, uh, media availability for the Perlin 2 project. Tell us a little bit about what you guys discussed today and, and go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience.
2: Hi, I'm Jim Payne. I'm the chief pilot of the Perlin project. And today we just discussed some of our plans for our next trip to Argentina.
1: And that is scheduled for when, Jim? Uh, I plan to arrive on the 8th of July. And we'll be there until September 16th. And now tell us, uh, well, first of all, uh, getting to Argentina for that, are you looking for a particular weather pattern before you launch? Is that why you have a, a window like that?
2: Yes, sir. Um, we're looking for basically the effect of the polar vortex occurring in Argentina. We are trying to climb to high altitude and mountain wave. Most mountain waves at uh, latitudes of the United States only go to around 35 40,000 feet, where the trouble pause is. Um, in Argentina, the low altitude winds impact the structure of the polar vortex, which has strong winds aloft, and the meteorologists tell us that the mountain wave might go to 130,000 feet in Argentina.
1: And so, uh, let's refresh our listeners and our viewers here a little bit about this. Um, First of all, let me start with your background. You're an Air Force uh, Academy graduate. That's where you learned how to soar, is that correct? That's true, back in 1971. And then so so soaring is, I'm gonna guess, is your first love, right? Well. After my wife, I'd say a second
2: love,
1: but uh, <laughs> I've loved soaring for a long time. It's great nice. really me to be able to fly without an engine. Nicely done, nicely done. So uh, back in the 70s, you learned how to soar, and this is you know for uh, for folks who are not familiar, it's you know flying without an engine, and you are totally dependent on, as you mentioned, mountain waves and uh, different atmospheric conditions. Tell us a little bit about what this high altitude flight. What you really want to do with it? What are you trying to accomplish uh, in the science behind it?
2: Well, you know, the Perlin 2 is a research vehicle. It's uh, the first cell plane designed to go to these very high altitudes. Has a pressurization system, which can have up to 8.5 psi differential, which gives us a cabin altitude of 14,500 feet at 90,000 feet. We have various instruments on the airplane where we can measure temperature, humidity, ozone. We're able to carry experiments called CubeSats. And just the fact that we're flying in a mountain wave will give us information on the structure of the wave, the winds aloft and the vertical velocities that are associated with a mountain wave so that we can map the mountain wave as we go to altitude.
1: Okay, well, and we've got a lot of technical stuff here to to plow through real quick, but um, first of all, you're talking about 90,000 feet and back in the day, you soared a sailplane to 42,000 feet. I guess that might've been kind of early on in your career. Is that correct? Yes, that was back in 1987 when I was at the test pilot school. The staff there scrounged a
2: pressure suit from the SR-71 folks and a bunch of equipment we put into a cell plane. And we we kind of discovered that the top of the wave at the latitudes of Edwards Air Force Base kind of stops at the tropopause. And that particular day, the tropopause was 42,000 feet and we got the 42,200. Okay, so you went above it. Well, the measurement of the tropopause is kind of inexact. That was on the sounding of Vandenberg, which is a couple hundred miles upwind. So, so that's approximately the trouble clause, Yes.
1: So, okay. So, putting it a little bit more in perspective, so um, commercial aircraft uh, fly thirty-five thousand feet, something like that, up to what thirty-nine thousand, typically. Forty-one or so. Yes. Okay. And then uh, general aviation pilots like myself, like when I got my seaplane rating, I was flying at five hundred feet. Okay. Right. So you're you're flying at ninety. Feet. Uh, my math's not great, that's 180 times higher than what I was doing?
2: Right, right.
1: <laughs> that's uh, pretty special, uh, pretty amazing. Now at 14,500 feet, you need to have oxygen, right? That's correct, yes. Tell us a little bit about the oxygen rebreather system. Is that what you guys are using?
2: Yes, yeah, so we're using a rebreather system. And the reason for that is a normal oxygen system expels extra oxygen into the cabin and because the cabin is pressurized by basically sealing it so it has low leaks you make up the lost air with a scuba tank Um, we'd end up with a high concentration of oxygen in the cabin which causes a fire hazard so with a rebreather we're not expelling oxygen into the cabin so that uh, we keep the cabin oxygen concentration below 25 percent.
1: Not to get off on a tangent here but there was an Apollo uh, disaster that happened with oxygen Uh, in the capsule when it was on the launch pad during a test. Is that what we're trying to avoid? Absolutely, that was Apollo 1. Now they had uh, basically one atmospheric pressure, 100%
2: oxygen when they had their mishap.
1: Um, As I said, we're
2: trying to keep our oxygen concentration below 25% in the cabin, which we've been able to do.
1: Okay, now as a pilot yourself, what, uh, uh, breathing thin air for a good amount of time, and what did you have to do to prepare for that? personally, like physically? Well, the
2: rebreather system provides uh, nearly 100% oxygen in the rebreathing loop. You know, I've got 3,000 hours of uh, fighter time F4, F16, A37, F5 time. So I spend a lot of time behind an oxygen mask. And with the rebreather system, it's essentially no different to the pilot's perspective than using an oxygen mask in your fighter.
1: Okay, so this, this is not that big a deal for you. No, sir. Okay. Now, in a fighter, you had to wear uh, special uh, flight suits that were like G-suits, things like that. Now, tell me about some special apparatus that you might need to um, be uh, wearing for this flight. Well, Other than the
2: oxygen system, our biggest challenge is uh, basically thermal management. At low altitude, because the cabin is sealed, we tend to get a little bit warm. Mm -hmm. And at high altitude, the outside air temperature is going to be extremely cold. So for the most part, we're planning on warm clothing and wearing warm clothing so that uh, you stay comfortable while we're at high altitude.
1: Now, one of the documents that's on the Perlan Project site talks about the uh, minus 70 degrees centigrade uh, uh, Celsius uh, temperatures that you'll uh, have, and that approximates the surface of Mars. Is that for real?
2: Well. Um, on Mars, because the atmosphere is so thin, I understand it depends on whether you're in shadow or sun. You can be really extreme temperatures. Now, because the atmosphere is thin, you're not going to have conductive heating; it's going to be radiational. But yeah, uh, you know, the thermal management on Mars is going to be a huge challenge. You know, the cabin, because it's sealed, we're not leaking a lot of air in, it is is much warmer than a normal glider cockpit.
1: Just because you can't get all of the leaks out of a normal cockpit. So this one's sealed and you can get most of the leaks out of it, if not all. Yeah, the only leaks we have will be outward because the pressure inside is higher than the outside. Gotcha. So that, that sounds really interesting. Now tell me a little bit about, uh, one, one of the documents on the Perlin Project site talks a little bit about the inspiration for young people. Now, of course, you guys are going where no one's gone before, like in Star Trek. Uh, but tell us a little bit about how are we going to get young people involved and bring them on board? What's the, what's the attitude towards that and what's the hope?
2: Well, I got inspired to fly gliders by a National Geographic article. Hopefully, young people seeing on the web what we're doing will be inspired to uh, be interested in uh, you know STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. We have space in a glider to carry four cubesats, we call it. So the Teachers in Space program had a competition among schools, and we have about 10 cubesats that have been uh, manufactured by classrooms throughout America that will carry on a rotating basis. What's a CubeSat? A CubeSat is was originally designed to be carried on uh, space vehicles like the shuttle. It's a cube that's 10 centimeters on a side hmm. and the students are allowed to build any kind of experiment they can inside that uh, 10 centimeter cube. We have a case that uh, we carry the CubeSats in. It has plumbing and a probe outside the cabin so that we can bring in outside air so that the experiments are able to sample whatever is in the outside
1: air. Gotcha. And that leads me to my next question, which is that, you know, a, a key piece of the project is to study the climate and climate change and uh, radiation and things like that. Take us a little bit through what we're trying to do as far as the science behind this and what we're really trying to explore.
2: One thing that really impacts uh, climate models is the mixing between the troposphere and the stratosphere. And it appears that the mountain wave is one of the primary mechanisms whereby there is mixing. At our latitudes over flat land where there's no mountain waves, there may not be significant mixing between the two layers. But in the polar regions where we have the polar vortex, there may be significant mixing between the upper and lower layers which impacts energy transfer, transfer aerosols, and some other things. So any data that we can gather that better enables the scientists to model what's going on is gonna make uh, the models better.
1: So that's gonna um, affect how we study climate and perhaps give us some clues as to if there really is or isn't global warming. I don't anticipate
2: we'll be able to figure it out by ourselves, but hopefully we can uh, add data to the knowledge base, which will make it easier for other people to figure it out. In the southern hemisphere, there's not a lot of good measurements of the atmosphere. Compared to the northern hemisphere, the weather forecasting there is not as good, just because the initial conditions for the models do not have inputs from surface observations and winds aloft observations from airliners. um, last year, when we were in Argentina, the forecasts were not near as good as a forecast you might see in the northern hemisphere just because of uh, lack of data.
1: Okay, so this is gonna give us more data sets and it's gonna help us learn a lot more about what's going on with the climate. Right. Gotcha. Tell me a little bit about the uh, the simulated uh, flight experiments that you guys did because you haven't been to ninety thousand feet yet. So you did a lot of research on this, computer modeling and such. Can you take us through that a little bit?
2: Well,. The, interesting aspect of this is that at 90,000 feet your true airspeed is 6.7 times your indicated airspeed. So if your indicated airspeed is say 40 knots, our, our stall speed is 38 knots. So at 40 knots times uh, 6.7, that's yeah, almost uh, 280 knots true airspeed. Now the wind speed is very strong at that altitude, so we're pointed into the wind and we're basically station keeping. We'll have to uh, zigzag a little bit. I mean, if you point it exactly straight into the wind, you'll probably move forward into the air mass.
1: So, when you're saying station keeping, does that mean basically you're almost hovering in in a, in, in a location more or less? Right. When the mountain wave is working, you end up having a line of lift which is parallel and downwind to
2: the mountain range. So, we just uh, move back and forth in that line of lift as we climb. So, we're pretty much over a single point on the ground which is really great when you're trying to sample the atmosphere because as you climb in altitude, you're sampling with respect to altitude. If you send up a balloon, the balloon's going to drift downwind at the wind speed. At 90,000 feet, the wind speed will probably be over 200 knots. So a balloon is going to be uh, disappearing off to the east very rapidly near Del Calapate.
1: Gotcha. That, that explains it pretty good. So we're going to do a lot of uh, climate change research. That's one goal of the project and is there another goal of sort of that from an aircraft design standpoint that could help us in the future? I was involved in a project many years ago at NASA where they were experimenting with the different airfoils for
2: high altitude. Um, the Perlin wing is designed for a low Reynolds number and as such it's optimized for about 60,000 feet, kind of a compromise between 90 and zero. As such at zero altitude or low altitude it's not as efficient as some other sailplanes But by the time you get to 60,000 feet, it'll be the most efficient cell plane ever flown at that altitude. Got to cover. We're proving
1: that the low altitude or the
2: low Reynolds number airfoils will work.
1: So this aircraft might not be that efficient at a low altitude, but where it's in its prime is at the higher altitudes. It's designed for that. The trick, I guess, would be getting it from low to high. Exactly. That's where the mountain
2: wave comes in. Now the mountain wave typically is stronger at low altitude, so you can afford to have some inefficiencies at low altitude. You really need to be efficient at higher altitudes where the mountain wave is not as strong.
1: How are you going to know how to surf that wave? I mean, you have instrumentation on board, I guess?
2: Absolutely. We have an accurate and sensitive vertical velocity indicator, which we call a variometer. I've flown many, many times in the wave, got extensive wave cross-country experience, you know, maybe a couple thousand hours worth. So. You know, there's experience, a little bit of art to flying in a wave, but uh, in general, it uh, is a pretty straightforward process.
1: Tell me a little bit about uh, the aircraft again, sort of kind of compare it to some of the some of the fighter jets that you flew, and uh, sort of give me a little comparison and contrast that, that our, our members and our podcast listeners will probably wonder about.
2: Well, it's kind of like the difference between driving a hydroplane and uh, sailing in a small sailboat. Um, you know, the... The V&E of the cell plane at low altitude is less than the takeoff speed of the F-16. Um, our V&E at low altitude is 121 indicated. By the time we get to 90,000 feet, it's down to 54 indicated, especially because of uh, the shock waves that would occur if you went above 54. So it, it's two completely different worlds. But if you love to fly, they're both uh, aspects of flying that... Uh, any pilot loves.
1: Uh, well, which do you personally prefer? Do you like uh, the glider flying a little bit more than the uh, powered flight or vice versa?
2: Well, as a test pilot, I was supposed to say the gl- airplane <laughs> that I'm flying now is my favorite airplane. Like I said, they're, they're two completely different realms. I enjoy the soaring because of the freedom. When we did flight tests, you develop a test plan, you go out and execute that test plan, which is uh, a very precise flight and it's a very choreographed flight. Where in the sailplane. plane, we're working with the atmosphere, and you can't predict ahead of time necessarily where the good lift is. So it's an optimization problem. You know, someone who flies an awesome flight in his power airplane, his buddy can duplicate that relatively easy. In the sailplane, plane, there's a lot of pilot skill and a little bit of art involved, and not everybody can do that. So someone who's a glider champion, you gotta got to give them respect because uh, they're good at what they do.
1: Well, and that leads to another thing uh, that even our regular fixed-wing pilots would, would be appreciative of is that you know, learning about the atmosphere and atmospheric conditions and climate conditions, the winds aloft, the winds on the ground, looking outside and uh, when you're lower to the ground than 90,000 feet, seeing you know, the leaves on, on uh, trees bl- blowing a certain way or the water surface a certain way, all of that is really good pilot knowledge, right? Absolutely. Um, Flying in a mountain wave, underneath
2: the mountain wave, there's a zone called the rotor zone, which is down low. And in that zone, you'll see some of the worst turbulence you can imagine. But not very far away from that zone is the lifting zone of the wave. And that is some of the most laminar airflow you'll imagine. And some power pilots can't believe it. So I'd recommend to all you folks out there that fly in the west, visit a a soaring site like Minden during the wave season and try to take a wave flight in a sailplane. The difference between the rotor zone and the lifting zone can be the length of a tow rope, which is 200 feet. So you're towing from the glider site, and you're flying in this severe turbulence. And the next thing in the length of the tow rope, you transition from turbulence to extremely laminar flow. You might see lift rates. I've seen as much as 2,800 feet a minute up, which means there's a corresponding sink someplace where it's that uh, severe going down. but. Uh, a couple years ago, I flew a flight that was 3,000 kilometers long in a mountain wave in 12 and a half hours. And uh, I'm up in the mountain wave, and uh, you getting flight following from ATC, and you're hearing all these power pilots that don't understand the wave talking about the turbulence and being unable to maintain altitude and so on. And typically, if they went just a little bit higher and a little bit upwind, they've been in a lifting part of the wave where it's extremely laminar and uh, actually rather nice
1: so twelve and a half hours on a wave, and you had flight following. Now I don't imagine there's that much traffic up there in those upper altitudes, though.
2: No, and uh, we don't have flight following in all places because you know as you go down to Sierra, there are places where there's no radar coverage. But you know, say up around uh, Reno, we talk to NorCal all the time just to make sure that we don't uh, meet up with airliner. And on on these long flights, we have a transponder, so anybody with uh, can receive a
1: transponder
2: with his, uh, ADSB and or his uh, TICAS, they can see us. Gotcha.
1: And the plane itself is, you know, the wingspan is rather lengthy, so it's a little bit bigger of an o- a little bit of a bigger object than other aircraft. I would, you know, I would think. What? It's a five hundred and three feet across. That's no, twenty five meters. Twenty five so 80- meters. Okay. So now, when you're not flying the, uh, when you're not flying or Perlan two. Uh, are there other other aircraft that you aviate in that you prefer?
2: Well, currently, you know, I want a the 182, so I get to fly that once in a while.
1: I own an open class uh, glider, which we use for cross-country soaring. So you've got a 182, another, another uh, cross-country glider, and of course you've got the um, experience in jets and everything. What uh, could you tell folks who are just aspiring to be pilots? You know, how could they get started uh, in your footsteps? And um, what, what's a, a key thing to do to, to really you know, get going in aviation?
2: Well, number one, I think, is motivation. You know, unfortunately, it's not a cheap hobby. But uh, if you start out in sailplanes, it's as basic stick and rudder skills as you can imagine. You know, a lot of power pilots transitioning to sailplanes. One thing they really have to learn is to use the rudder to coordinate. You know, Any time you make an Aileron input with a long wings, you have a lot of adverse yaw. So you end up learning how to uh, coordinate the airplane. And most people that get involved in gliders become very interested in meteorology. We call it micrometeorology, but uh, the meteorology of the rising air currents, thermals, and mountain waves, and ridge, if you understand that, you very much better understand the atmosphere and what's going on in the atmosphere. So most good glider pilots are pretty good amateur meteorologists.
1: That makes sense, too. I went up with uh, with a friend of mine uh, out in Albuquerque and we did some balloon flying and the same kind of deal. Uh, Colin Graham had mentioned that micrometeorology was the key to their success. Absolutely. All kinds of pilots could take a page out of your book and study the weather, study the climate. And uh, and really, like you said, get comfortable in, a, in a, a soaring atmosphere. And it's a little bit less expensive to get going, uh, you know, to attain a, a pilot certificate that way, really and you can do it at a younger age, right? 14 years old, you can solo, you get your license at 16. Do you remember how old you were when you soloed? I don't mean to put you on the spot. I was 19. Okay, gotcha. So uh, we had a, a great talk right now. What have I not asked you about that you really want to get the message across uh, to our folks about? You
2: well, know, anybody that's interested in aviation, especially uh, sport type aviation that has not tried flying cell planes should give it a try. Um, as I said, uh, you know, my longest flight actually is 15 and a half hours. Um, it's amazing what you can do with a sailplane. It's amazing air currents that you'll find in the atmosphere and, uh, you know, the vistas
1: and just the serenity of flying in an airplane that's quiet is uh, rather outstanding. That's a uh, thing that I was going to close on is that it, uh, I've been on a very short flight. It was, you know, half hour, not 14 and a half hours. But uh, I noticed it was very quiet and it was very peaceful. And is it like that when you're at the edge of space? I mean, what, is that, what does a pilot think about when you're up there?
2: It turns out because the purlin is pressurized, it has no significant leaks. It's actually the quietest sailplane that I've ever flown in. And it's extremely quiet, so you, know, you have to rely on your instruments for things like uh, your airspeed. You know, at very high altitude, eventually you get to the point where the atmosphere is so thin that the light is not being scattered as it comes into the, towards the Earth. So the sky turns dark, and you get high enough, that you can see the curvature of the Earth.
1: Now, are you planning on, uh, on doing some, uh, some Skyping or Instagramming from, uh, from the edge of outer space there, or how can folks follow you? Well, we have a website, perlinproject.org.
2: Um, when we're flying, we actually have what we call a virtual cockpit and we're taking the telemetry that comes from the sailplane and displaying those data on a website so you can see the position of the airplane you can see the flight conditions and it shows things like our oxygen level and so on so kind of a virtual cockpit as as the title goes and it gives people a chance to kind of watch along as we fly
1: so they can follow along as you fly they could find you at perlinproject.org and uh, hopefully you'll do some social media on your way into that so folks could cheer you on and, and uh, give you a virtual attaboy, that kind of thing. Uh, do you need uh, want to do a quick call-out to some of the teammates that are helping you pull this together? Yeah, we
2: have a very large team, um, and of course we'll have you know Facebook and Twitter accounts going. But, uh, you know, Anna Bolson, he was a uh, former NASA test pilot. He got this whole thing going. He and Steve Fawcett, they were the principal people that were in the Perlin 1 project that uh, set the current altitude record. Along the way, there have been a lot of people that uh, have really helped the project. Uh, Morgan Sandercock, he is uh, one of our engineers, and one of our pilots. He has built a lot of the electronic hardware that's inside the airplane. Uh, Dennis Tito, he helped out with the funding. And uh, Elizabeth uh, from Weather Extreme, Elizabeth Austin, um, she's really helped us out with the weather forecasting aspects.
1: And if folks want to find out a little bit more about them, they could go to perlinproject.org slash team and find out about the entire team. And um, really from the main uh, webpage, they could find out a little bit more about mountain waves and the impact on systems and a little bit more about atmospheric research, all that uh, Perlinproject.org. So it sounds like a cool deal. You guys are looking for uh, the middle of July. Well we wish you a lot of uh, luck and success on the project and on the experiments and really uh, getting to the edge of outer space. Jim, we appreciate your time here at AOPA. Uh, any, any last words you want to let us know about? Well thank you David. I, I just like to encourage uh, power pilots to
2: try soaring. It's uh, kind of like going from power boat to a sailboat, only it's in three dimensions
1: but uh, it'll improve your skill and uh, it's a lot of fun. We appreciate it, Jim Payne. Thank you very much again. Uh, Hats off to you and the entire team. Uh, We appreciate a little bit of support from the Airbus folks that helped pull this together on Skype today. And uh, thanks for, for calling in via Skype and hopefully we'll catch you on the virtual world on the internet. Well, thank you very much. All right, thanks again, see ya.
0: All right, David. So little bubble, 90,000 feet glider. Would you do it? I'd do it if if I was going to be at the edge of space. Yeah, that's that's the closest you
1: could be to outer space. That's true. That's what he
0: was telling us. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that's a great point.
1: And he's got some science uh, experiments on board that we heard about. That's really kind of neat that the younger generation is getting involved with this, too. That's awesome. I like it. We wish him a lot of luck and uh, hope that he sets some records.
0: Yeah. All right. So I think that's all the time we've got for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hanson. And
1: I'm David Tulis. You could find us at hangertalk at aopa.org if you want to email us. Don't forget we're now on iTunes and we're at Sporty's Takeoff app. And you could also find us at aopa.org slash Talk. All right. We'll see you
0: next time. See
1: you next time, Ian.